Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 286, The Volga, Part 2. Last time, we interviewed Professor Paul Robinson, author of the book Russian Liberalism. Today, we continue our story about the mighty Volga River. Now that the Russians had control of the Volga River and the surrounding regions, it was time to give out land grants to the nobility. Note that I didn't say the Russian people, as this wasn't the case. The Tsar technically owned the land, and only he could give it to those he chose. The principle was that the land granted was also done so temporarily, although many kept the land as an ancestral heritage. It was also given when military service was part of the deal. The question, of course, that had to be raised is, who would work the land? Well, it sure wouldn't be the nobles. Peasants would live and work on the land, whether growing crops or tending to farm animals. They would then pay the landowner a fee to continue. This was a very meager existence, leading many to leave their homes and shop for better opportunities. Oftentimes, the landovers, landowners never visited their property, making controlling the peasants difficult, if not impossible. The government would devise a solution with the Law Code of 1649. This was when the institution of serfdom was codified. While the restrictions on the peasants' movement were in place before the mid-17th century, it would be under Tsar Alexis that they would start to be strictly enforced. The serfs and their families would be bound to the estate, only moving with permission. I found it interesting that the nobles who pushed Alexis to make this proclamation were not the wealthy aristocrats, but the poorer landowners serving in the military. They had a much harder time controlling their peasants. This would continue until the reign of Alexander II, of course, who ended serfdom in 1861. So, who were these peasants turned serfs? The very same people that the Russians conquered when they took Kazan and Astrahan. The Mari, Chuvash, Udmurt, Mordvin, and Tatar. They would become the property of the Russian nobility, both high and low. According to Janet Hartley in her book, The Volga, A History of Russia's Greatest River, Quote, for all the weaknesses of the military system and of serfdom, this policy did mean that lands could be granted to servitors in the new areas of the Volga, and in turn, the beneficiaries could be expected to be loyal to the Russian government. The recipients could be minor nobles, given land inhabited by ten or so peasants, or great magnates who already had massive estates elsewhere in the country. She further goes on to write, quote, By 1568, 34 nobles had been given 30 villages and 485 peasant homes in Sviatsheks. Some of this land in Sviatsheks, however, was empty, because roughly half of the land granted on the Middle Volga had villages on it. Now, as you might imagine, these peasants, who lived as predominantly free farmers for centuries, were now told that 
they were property of their new Russian overlords. This would lead to a resentment that would fester for years, leading to several of the peasant revolts that I've talked about way back in episodes 125 to 129. Still, many of the natives were used to paying tribute to the Mongols and then their successors, the Tatars. Not everyone who was a native to the lands of the Volga was against this appropriation and enslavement. Those Tatars who converted from Islam to Christianity and agreed to serve the Russian military were given lands and serfs. You didn't even really need to convert. You just needed to serve for you to get property. There was a significant labor shortage, though, in the Volga region, as I mentioned earlier. Half the land was uninhabited. The magnates took serfs from other properties and resettled them into these new, often very rich, fertile areas. Back to Hartley, she writes, quote, There was especially intense settlement of the Russian peasants by landowners on the rich black earth agricultural lands in the Saratov region. It was estimated that by 1678, over 200,000 ethnic Russian peasants were settled in the region, and by 1719, the number had risen to almost 500,000. By the end of the 18th century, the majority of serfs in the Volga region were ethnically Russian, comprising 64% of the Middle Volga, 71% of the Lower Volga, and 41% of the very southern Delta Volga region. That proportion remained through much of the same to the mid-19th century. Surprisingly, the Orthodox Church was one of the most critical players in assuring Russian dominance of the Volga region. They would be very active in converting Muslims in the area and other non-Christians. Additionally, they would build churches and monasteries throughout the region. The state would grant them serfs of their own to work in the fields and care for the churches and monasteries. This would generate revenue for both the Orthodox Church and the state. These peasants were known as monastic or church peasants, but in reality, they were still serfs. The first monastic settlement was in the town of Sviatchesk in 1551 by Ivan IV. Monasteries would pop up on the Volga in increasing numbers. They would bring in enormous amounts of money, with the fishing rights of the Savro Storozhevsky Monastery hauling in an estimated 10 million rubles in 1700. They would generate revenue not just from farming, but from having lucrative fishing rights. They would often charge tolls along the river for traders who traveled the Volga. Things, were, though, were not entirely safe and rosy for those who settled in the Volga region, especially in the middle and lower river areas. Constant raids by the nomadic Nogai, Kyrgyz, Kazakhs, and Kalmyks would ravage the towns and cities along the Volga. This would continue throughout the 17th century, with the towns of Samara and Saratov being particularly vulnerable. In addition to the attacks from outsiders, peasant revolts would begin to increase from within. Another threat was robbers and thieves who would prey on merchant ships traveling up and down the river. Because of revenue losses due to rampant crimes, the government would mete out extreme punishments to those caught. 
British merchant Jonas Hanway wrote this in 1743 about what he saw in the treatment of criminals. Quote, A sufficient number of iron hooks on which they were hung alive by the ribs. The float is launched into the stream with labels over their heads signifying their crimes. And orders were given to the inhabitants of all towns and villages on the borders of the river, upon pain of death, to afford no relief to any of these wretches, but to push off the float should it land near them. These malefactors sometimes hung there thus three, four, and some five days. Violence up and down the Volga was so common that it was almost expected. Interestingly, it would get worse during religious holidays, especially at Easter time. Drunken celebrations would inevitably lead to aggression. Peasants would revolt against the landholders. Fellow nobles would attack each other, and gangs would roam the countryside, robbing and beating up everyone they encountered. Piracy became a major headache for the government and merchants. Bandits would use flat-bottom boats, known as sturgi, to attack the sailing ships in a kind of hit-and-run style. Few of the merchant boats were armed, as that would increase the expense of travel. Even worse, there were times when the armed guards would join the attacking gangs, making off with the valuable cargo. The biggest threat to the towns and villages along the Volga River was the Cossack raiders. The Cossacks were nomads made of variety of peoples. They were mostly Russian or Ukrainian former escaped serfs or peasants, but they could be Turkic or part of some other ethnic background. Over the years, the Russian czars knew they needed to do something about the Cossack threat. They decided that they could enlist them into military service as protectors of the lands surrounding the Volga. Many of them would be granted land rights in return for service. While not the most reliable troops within the Russian army, they were helpful in repelling attacks for the remaining free Tatars, Nogais, and Kalmyks. Occasionally, the Cossacks would rebel against the Russian officers sent to lead them. It wouldn't be until the late 18th to early 19th century that the Cossacks would be truly tamed. After suppressing both the Razin and Pugachev rebellions in the Volga Basin region, the Russian Empire knew it had to shut down any hint of revolt to secure the valuable river trade. They would do this with ruthless repression of any Cossack people who sided with the rebels. Many of the Cossacks who remained in the area would be forcibly moved to the North Caucasus or stationed there if they were part of the military. They were moved from the Volga River to the Terek. By the late 18th century, Russia had almost complete control of the region. The government increased its military presence and began to flood the Volga with one of Russia's best-known forces, its bureaucracy. In 1774, there were approximately 13,000 administrators, growing to 27,000 in 1796. One of the significant problems that was, in part, the cause of the general lawlessness in the Volga region was low population density. It allowed the bandits to find lots of places to hide after committing their crimes. Catherine II 
had an idea. She would encourage immigrants to settle in the area with many incentives like land, freedom of religion, tax exemptions, and freedom from serving in the military. The focus was on German peasants, especially from the region of Hesse. While there was a large influx of hardworking Germans into the Volga Basin, a large number of people were also leaving, particularly the Kalmyks. Over 150,000 left, leaving significant gaps in farmland that could, be, that could not be filled with the new immigrants. The Kalmyks decided to head east, back to their original homeland near the border with China. Along the way, they were mercilessly attacked by neighboring tribes. This would cause an estimated 100,000 lives to be lost. It was truly an unnecessary genocide. While the trade along the Volga enriched many, it would also be the bearer of disease and death. Infectious illnesses like cholera and the plague would travel up the river, mainly from the southern port of Astrahan. They would begin the spread at each port, making its way into the Russian heartland. In 1770, 70,000 people died of an outbreak in Moscow of the plague. Thousands more would die up and down the Volga River during the 1770 or 1770-71 plague. It would ravage whole towns and cities before burning out. More plague outbreaks would continue into the 19th century, devastating the populations of those living on or near the Volga. What made the Volga River so unique and important was its breadth. It was so broad that many peasants would never cross to the other side. There would be inhabitants of one side or the other. Here's an excerpt from the novel My Children by Tatar writer Guzel Yakina. Quote, The Volga divided the world in two. The left bank was low and yellow and flat, stretching out into the steppe, from beyond which the sun rose every morning. The earth here was bitter to taste, and dug up by gophers. The grass was dense and high, but the trees were stunted and sparse. The fields disappeared beyond the horizon, multicolored melons like a bashkir's blanket. The villages clung along the water's edge. The wind blew hot and spicy from the steppe, from the Turkmen desert and the salty Caspian. What it was like on the other bank, no one knew. A cold wind always blew from the right bank, from over the mountains, from the distant North Sea. If you notice the line about not knowing what was on the other bank, it was due to the very width of the Volga in many places. The peasants and serfs were likely not to have access to boats or ships, and those who did saw no real reason to cross the river. Also, on one side of the river bank, they usually had far better soil than the other. With there being no benefit in going to the other side, few would even think about crossing. Now, let's talk a little bit about the demographics of the Volga River region in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. By 1795, approximately 50% of the ethnic Russian population were serfs. They were privately owned as opposed to state peasants. By the same year, 
about 40% of the population fit under this category. This meant that fully 90% of Russians were owned by the government, the church, or private citizens. Mentioned, Russia has lots of land, but not enough people to work it. Because of this, it didn't matter how much land you possessed, wealth was measured in part by the number of serfs you owned. Per Janet Hartley in her book, The Volga, one family stood above the rest when it came to the ownership of serfs. Quote, the wealthiest family in the Russian Empire was that of the Shishermatevs. Count N.P. Shishermatev owned 185,610 serfs and over 10,500 square kilometers of land in the whole empire in the late 18th century and had an annual income of over 600,000 rubles. To put this into perspective, the largest slaveholder in U.S. history was Colonel Joshua John Ward of Georgetown, South Carolina, who, at his peak, owned 1,130 slaved people. That is less than 1% of the number that the count had. It has been argued that Russia abolished slavery when Peter the Great imposed a poll tax in 1718, but that is more semantics than reality. Indentured servitude was what serfdom became, according to some. This is somewhat disingenuous, as the serfs had few rights, and their families could remain in the same position for generations without ever being able to pay off what they owed. This would continue beyond the emancipation ordered by Alexander II in 1861. The poll tax was one of two taxes the Russian and non-Russian peasants had to pay. The other was known as a brok. The serfs or peasants could either pay the amount declared each year, which rapidly kept climbing, or they could devote part of their labor to the landowner. When the price of grains and other agricultural products went up, the landowners would refuse to take the payment and force the people to produce up to three days of work on the fields a week. This caused a great deal of resentment by the serfs and led to quite a number of other rebellions, although none as big as the ones instigated by Emilian Pugachev or Stenka Razin. Another strain on the peasants of the Volga was mandatory conscription into the Russian army. The term was for 25 years, which meant a life sentence in those days. If a man was conscripted, they would perform funeral services for him and his family. It would strain any family's finances if they lost the primary breadwinner and strongest farmer. It would be the peasant commune, known as the Mir, who would select those who would be conscripted. Sometimes it would be done by lottery, but most often the noble who owned the serfs would decide who would go and who would stay. Typically, they would prefer not to lose those men with families because that would hurt their bottom line. It's better to lose a single man or one who was a notorious drunk or lazy. The communes that chose who would go would look at the same situation the same way. Get rid of the bad seeds and keep the good ones to spread the burden of work more evenly and fairly. 
Hartley describes this process in her book. Quote, in 1788, for example, the surf commune in the village of Molodetud in Tver province resolved to dispatch as recruits 71 men for negligence in plowing, for not paying dues, suspicious character, and failure to pay taxes. In the village of Baki in Kostroma province, three peasants were conscripted in 1819 on the grounds of dissolute and drunken behavior and failure to pay taxes. One of the issues that presented itself in the 18th and 19th centuries was the problem of relations between the Orthodox and Muslims. When Russia took control of the entirety of the Volga and its surrounding areas, it inherited a sizable Muslim population. With the arrival of native Russians, and with the building of numerous monasteries and churches along and near the river, it would create tension. There was minimal mixing between the two groups, with most living in separate enclaves. Hartley describes the way the Russian government dealt with this delicate issue. Quote, Converted Tatars, who had reconverted from Christianity to Islam, were moved away from their villages, and converted Tatars were moved to Christian villages. According to the legislation of 1756, Tatars were only allowed to retain or build mosques in villages that were exclusively populated by Muslim Tatars, and where there were at least 200 male Muslim Tatars. The tensions, especially among the Muslims in the Volga River region, kept growing as they became more aware of their heritage and that others were like them to the south. The fighting wasn't by the Muslims against Russian Christians, but with those Tatars who converted to Orthodoxy and refused to reconvert to Islam. This would become an increasingly large problem in the late 19th century. Those Germans who came at the behest of Catherine the Great into the Volga River region would bring their forms of Christianity, Protestantism and Catholicism. Not only would they keep themselves separate from the native Russians, but they would divide their communities by religion as well. The Germanic people would pretty much stay away from their Russian neighbors. As William Spottiswood would say the following, quote, Remarkable to see how these little colonies amalgamate with the Russians. They retain their own language, customs, and habits. And it must be added that the Russians also retain theirs. Neither the neater habits of the former, not the ingenuity, nor their thriftiness, seem to have had the slightest effect on the people among whom they dwell. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I will pause here so you will join me next time when we end the history of the Volga in the last episode. So until next time, das vidanya, i spasiba za venya manya.